Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for a special episode 17.5. Today's episode focuses on the hashtag Red Alert Restart event this Tuesday, September 1st, in which more than 2,000 buildings across North America will be lit up red from 9 p.m. to midnight local time to raise awareness for the 12 million live event workers who are out of work and the thousands of live event businesses that have had their revenue cut by 90% or more. This is to encourage Congress to pass the Restart Act to provide assistance to small businesses and to extend PUA unemployment benefits for displaced workers. Here to talk with us about it is our guest, Dennis Size, Vice President of Design at the Lighting Design Group, a firm that lights major news networks and events in New York, North America, and across the globe. Dennis has been at LDG for the past 23 years, and before that was at Disney slash ABC TV for 18 years. He has lit every president since Reagan, and has designed dozens of projects from Good Morning America, NBC's Today Show, Oprah, and Ellen, to CNN and Fox News. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Dennis Size, to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Ethan. This is August 28th, 2020, so we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're also amidst the Black Lives Matter reawakening in the United States. Yes, indeed. There's a lot of things going on. 2020, the year that shouldn't have been. (laughs) Oh, and the other thing is this week, we just finished with the Republican National Convention, which was, you know, a last minute crazy setup. And so I know you've been lighting coverage of that all week. So have you just been having nice, easy eight-hour days or what? Oh, yeah. They, uh, they start nicely at seven in the morning and they finish about midnight. Uh, not only have I been lighting coverage specifically for uh, ABC and their uh, ABC Live Internet division, but LDG, Lighting Design Group, also lit the Republican convention in all the locations. Originally, I was called to do it, but uh, this week I have three different projects that I was already booked on from morn till night, and I had to turn them down. The director happens to be a friend and colleague of Steve Brills, so he called Steve, who, as you know, owns Lighting Design Group. Even though I was unable to do it, we're still doing it. (laughs) So between uh, Steve Brill and, and Danny Kelly, who I think you know, Uh, They supervise the lighting at all of the RNC locations that you've seen this week. That is amazing. Everybody's busy this week, and I've I've done five of these bonus episodes about the hashtag Red Alert Restart, and you have been the hardest person to pin down (laughs) schedule-wise. We were going to do it at one in the morning because you were just like, I don't have any other time. (laughs) I get home from work uh, this week about and last week at about one in the morning. And that's when I usually uh, uh, have my time, if you will. Unfortunately, it's also when I do my homework. Uh, Not that that matters. I usually do my homework from 11, 12 at night after my kids go to bed and I have uh, time to myself. Uh, That's just what I've always done because I find it easier to work at night. Most friends of mine know that if they want to talk to me about something, call me at midnight. Perfect. And now I know that, too. (laughs) There you go. You you have my secret. Please don't tell anybody. (laughs) 
Okay, could you give us a recap of your life and your career up to where you are right now? Um, I thought we only had an hour. <laughs> All right, born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Anthracite coal capital of the world. Not wanting to denigrate Scranton, but most people who were born there can't wait to get out. Went to uh, Scranton Prep High School, private Jesuit high school, uh, and then on to the University of Scranton for reasons that it was one of the best pre-med schools in the East Coast. Oh, okay. As a child, when most people, most kids wanted to be a cowboy or an Indian or a fireman or a a cop, I wanted to be a doctor. And that's all I ever really wanted to be. Not that I knew why. It was the profession that most people strove to be or to be a lawyer or some professional career like that. In the 60s, little boys didn't say, I want to grow up to be a lighting designer or I want to grow up to be a scene designer. That, uh, that, that just didn't happen. So it wasn't until I was in uh, high school and uh, uh, I was very active musically. My father ran a bar and restaurant. To keep me out of trouble, he sent me out for piano lessons and accordion lessons and guitar lessons and tap dance lessons and ballet lessons. And if there was a lesson that could be had, I probably took it. Most actors would love to have had the early education I had. But because of that, I had a a strong appreciation of music. It, It serviced me well because once I got into high school, I started playing in rock and roll bands and then being in Scranton in the Poconos, I did supper music on weekends at dinner parties and dinner clubs in the Poconos. I was asked to play the piano for the first musical that Scranton Prep High School ever did, (laughs) which was You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. All right. I thought it was fun and I, I was good so I could read a conductor's score and play the piano and the musical director that they brought in to to direct it and do the music and I hit it off. That was my senior year. Then that summer, the University of Scranton Players, which was a very active group, was doing their very first summer theater. One of the shows they were doing was You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. (laughs) They had a a music director, but they needed an accompanist, a piano player and a drummer. And uh, since I knew all kind of connections with the music people in the area, I said, sure, we'll do this. This will be fun. But it led from your good man, Charlie Brown, to Dames at Sea and Roar of the Grease Paint, Smell of the Crowd. So that was my summer uh, after I graduated from high school. Next thing you know, I find myself in the theater, as it were. (laughs) After three years of pursuing my pre-med degree, and in those three years, finding that I wanted to be in every show I possibly could in whatever way possible, I decided that uh, pre-med was not necessarily the career. That was the hobby. Mm -hmm. And theater was the career, (laughs) not the hobby. In in addition to music lessons and all of that, my father used to send me out with uh, carpenters and plumbers and electricians who came in and out of the bar so that I could learn a trade. So if that doctor thing never worked (laughs) out, I'd at least be able to earn a living for myself. That being said, on nights that the show would be over and they were building the new show, as I am wont to do, you you get to be friends with people in the show or you're dating somebody in the show, but they can't go out because they're building scenery or they're hanging lights or whatever to help people get out quicker so we can go out and party. Uh, Well, I'll help you with that. And uh, they'd see that I knew how to build stuff, that I knew how to wire things. And they said, well, you're pretty good at this. Next thing you know, I'm that tech guy And if they're doing a musical, I'm that music guy. Next thing you know, by the time I graduated, I was president of the University of Scranton Players, and I was doing about seven shows a year between the university and uh, other different community groups. 
when I realized, okay, this is what I'm going into. <laughs> but I was also directing shows in addition to musical directing because I took on a job at the local high school to be the musical director for their first production of Camelot. The director got sick. I ended up saying, well, I could probably do this because, you know, what 18-year-old can't? So I started directing the shows. Next thing you know, I'm directing and producing, um, being the musical director. And I just said, well, this is cool. I might be able to make a career out of this. After a while, I realized when I, I wanted to go to graduate school, I really didn't like working with actors. I didn't like being an actor. What I really loved was when that, that curtain opened and the audience went, wow, that's what I like. That stage picture, that composition. I went to Penn State for my MFA in scenery and lighting design. After I finished graduate school, the University of Scranton, where I went, was starting a theater program with a, a degree. They called me and asked me to come back and be the design and technical teacher. So I went back to do that. In the middle of the year, a professor of mine from Penn State called and said, hey, ABC TV is looking for lighting designers trained in the theater to come in and substitute for people who are on vacation. And you've always wanted to do the TV thing and the film thing. Maybe this might be something you'd want to do. I should also mention when I was at Penn State, shows that I designed, we took to the Penn State PBS broadcast system. So they do a show and then we put it on television. Because one of my bachelor's degrees is in television communications, and I worked at the PBS affiliate in Scranton, I ended up becoming very interested in transferring shows from the stage to television. And I did a few of those at Penn State. I ended up interviewing at ABC Network to do what's called vacation relief. They ended up hiring me because at that point in the, uh, in the 70s, the TV soap operas wanted a more theatrical, naturalistic look. They were hiring directors out of theater, and they didn't want the shows lit like the honeymooners, where they put up 40 scoops and call it a day, and uh, it looked like your refrigerator, where you open the door, and there it is. The first show I did uh, as a vacation relief was uh, a soap opera called Ryan's Hope. I know very little about network broadcast television at the time, but I had done enough lighting for television, and I had done enough theater pieces. It, it just It was a good fit. Plus, the lighting designer for the show and I hit it off very well, and he had the same background I did, so we could talk on the same page. Most soap operas had two or even three LDs on the show because the days were so long, one guy couldn't do every day. The hour soaps, like All My Children or, or Young and the Restless or General Hospital, you go in at midnight, you hang lights for up to 10 sets. At 10 o'clock, they come in and start blocking. And then they do tech rehearsal, and then they tape, ideally with the goal of getting out by 8 or 9 o'clock at night. That doesn't mean they finish. They keep doing retakes and retakes. You get out at midnight. So here, the LD, who's there the longest, comes in at midnight, and you might not get out till midnight. So you did alternate days. Most soaps had an LD that did Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the other LD did Tuesday, Thursday. On the days you weren't in the studio, you were doing production meetings and going through the shooting scripts and your needs and your rental and your equipment list for the day that you were coming up with. The bigger shows, like All My Children, actually shot in two studios. So you would have one LD split the shift, do one studio, the other LD did the other studio, and then once they started taping, the early LD left because he was there every day, and the second LD did the show. So there's lots of ways that soap operas function. 
But the point of fact is, it's a factory and it's, it's detrimental to your health and well-being. Ryan's Hope only had one LD because it was a half hour show. So when I was covering the show, everybody said, oh, it's very difficult, it's very difficult. But it was, we were done by three o'clock because you didn't have an hour's worth of show to do. You only had a half hour. But it's very difficult for one guy. Meanwhile, while I was doing it, I had a show running off off Broadway that I was doing. And, and people were saying, how do you do this? Said, well, it, it's funny in TV, you don't have to worry about the set. You don't have to worry about the sound. You don't have to worry about the act. You're just worrying about lighting. And you know what it's like in theater. It's so collaborative and everybody's working together. You're really doing everything. It's kind of crazy, and, and I digress from my biography, but one of the reasons that I think I get so much work and do so much is I still do everything. I will go into a show, and I'll help the director direct. I'll work with the scenic designers. I'll redo scenery with designers. I'll change lighting. I'll do all the stuff that we do in theater, and consequently, I, I get a lot of work because people see that I can pretty much handle anything they need for me to do or anything I need to do that I see needs to be done. Anyway, going back to the story of my life, did Ryan's Hope for the vacation period. The gentleman comes back from vacation who's doing the show, and then I go off and I start doing, you don't just do that one show that you're hired to cover the vacations. If you're successful, then they send you to other stuff. So I started covering other soaps, and, and it was fairly successful. And then a couple of months later, I was released, and I go off into my world of theater, and the gentleman who was doing Ryan's Hope has a nervous breakdown. The producer said, hey, bring back Dennis. He really did a nice job. Plus, the show won an Emmy Award for Best Design that year. And even though I wasn't eligible because I wasn't the full-time designer, the tape was all my work because we shared the lighting design. So all of a sudden, I'm back at the network, and I'm a full-time lighting designer for television that I just kind of fell into. I went from one soap to another to another. And I have the attention span of a gnat, so <laughs> it was very difficult for me to stay on one show for years on end, so I would try and go on to another show and another show, and after about 15 years of, of soap opera factory work, I got tired of going into the studio and throwing up the dentist size bag of tricks, even though the soap operas were very creative, the closest thing to theater that was going on. You know what it is. You, the reason we do what we do is the challenges that we get, the desire to be more creative and, and to solve other problems and see different looks and more artistic sensibility development. You're doing the same thing day in and day out. You don't really get that unless you experiment. And even while all this TV work is going on, I'd run off and do a ballet or a stage play. I was doing master classes. I was teaching a Carnegie Mellon part-time. So there's a lot of stuff in my life. But uh, I decided I wanted out of entertainment division. I wanted to get more experiences. So I transferred into special events, which led me into the world of uh, Olympics and presidential conventions and uh, variety shows. Uh, I did the Emmy Award uh, broadcast a few times. And that just goes on and on and on until finally I got fed up with uh, working at ABC and I quit. At a time where uh, Steve Brill and Bill Berner, who ran a company called Berner and Brill Lighting, were um, basically uh, inviting me to join them. Finally, I just had enough of the television network and I walked out and said, okay, here I am, let's, let's do something. Bill Berner, who is a fabulous lighting designer, I don't know if you've worked with Bill or not, but he kind of quit the lighting design thing because he wanted to be more of a director. And even now he's either directing shows or he's a DP on sitcoms and stuff like that. 
uh, you know, you, you, uh, you're one of our, uh, our favorite freelancers at LDG, so you know how we operate. It's a group. We didn't want to have Burner and Brill or Size and Brill or anybody. We wanted to be a group of designers that we knew were going to grow and grow and grow. Because when I joined the company, there were only four designers on staff. In January, we had 33 designers on staff, a great deal in part because of my uh, rapid boredom problems that I would create a show, set it up, but you don't want to leave it. You know, it's, it's like your child. You, you know what it's like when you design a show. You're always interested in it. Even on a theater piece that runs and runs and runs, you go back. You, you say, why did I do it that way? Why don't I do it this way? Or why don't I try this? So we, when we design a show, we try and, you know, keep our claws into it so that we can not only maintain the artistic integrity, but also make money. I mean, it's a business. But that means hiring younger designers to come in and sit on the shows because the producers don't want to pay full rate. And at the same time, if they know that you'll be paying attention and they can still get that lighting design group look, then they hang on to it and, and we negotiate other deals. And, and you see what we do. You can't turn on your television at any time of the day or night and not see one of our shows. We're everywhere. And, and that basically takes us to now. So there you go. That is amazing. <laughs> at a master class I did once, one of the students said, what's the, what's the secret of success? How do you continue? How do, how do you, you know, manage to keep working in this business? I said, you don't grow up. I, I actually didn't say it that nicely. I used a word that begins with us. <laughs> they said, what do you mean? I said, you get a job, you work hard, do the best you can, and don't make any mistakes. Because if you make a mistake, you never hear from them again. If you don't make mistakes and you don't screw up and the show is successful, then what happens is they say, hey, that production we did was pretty good. Call that, that, that lighting guy back. He was pretty good. And that's how it works. You get called back. And after a while, it's, hey, what that, uh, that guy's name is uh, Size or whatever it was. Call him back. He did pretty good. And after a while, it becomes, hey, let Dennis do this. And then after a while, it just ends up, but uh, it's naturally assumed. I'm doing a, a relight right now for the talk show Tamron Hall. And that's consuming my days because at night I was doing the RNC coverage. And I was going through the hall today, and one of the uh, production managers said, I'll see you on Monday. I said, Monday? Where am I going to see you? Well, in Brooklyn. We're doing that big survey for the Alicia Keys concert. I said, what Alicia Keys concert? Yeah, we're doing Alicia Keys concert. It's going to be an original show origination of Good Morning America in two weeks out in Brooklyn. I said, well, nobody told me that. <laughs> oh, well, you should have known. So put it on your calendar. And, 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 and that's what happens. You know, I didn't screw up on a concert I did for Good Morning America about 20 years ago, and I've been doing their summer concert series for the last 20 years. They just naturally assume I'm going to be there because uh, that's what I do. Unfortunately, this summer, communication has been very poor, and their summer concert series for the first time in 20 years was canceled. Uh, usually, we do it up in Central Park at the uh, summer stage. stage. And uh, as I said, the 2020 should, uh, I want to set the reset button on 2020. Don't we all? <laughs> Anyway, that's the, that's the history of me up until today. Oh, my goodness. All right, Dennis, I just want to thank you again for sitting down with me because I started freelancing for LDG in 2012. So it's been about eight years. And the only thing from your story that I knew was that you worked at ABC and you also did theater at times. That's all I knew out of that whole story. 
<laughs> but I'm sure you must have known I'm a great guy and fun to be with, or don't the guys at CNN say well, that? Oh, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. As the executive vice president of design, which is a fancy title to, to justify my salary, uh, I'm essentially the guy that hires everybody. And of the 33 designers we had at LDG, I hired 30 of them. I, I like to maintain my relationships with the guys, even at CNN. And years ago, I uh, used to personally train them. I'm, I mean, I've been at Lighting Design Group now for 23 years as of last week. We're so busy and we have so many people. And I'm so busy being a designer that the management aspects start to uh, drag me down. I, I really don't like that because I'm a designer. You know how it is. It's, uh, we do what we do left to our own devices, we'd rather be working in some dumpy little theater down on 4th Street doing some creative play as opposed to managing 30 people on a project. But we do what we do because it's all part of the business. And it truly is a business. You and I haven't really worked on any projects together that I know of when I've worked at LDG. But I know who you are because you'll stop in. Like I've been at Fox and you stop in or I've been at CNN and you stop in or all these. So I know who you are, but you probably wouldn't be able to pick me out of a crowd necessarily. <laughs> probably not. I mean, we've talked on the phone or emailed over the years. And at one point, I think I tried to hire you on staff and you said I'd never work for you ever in my life. Uh, so uh, not, not true at all. I did not say that. <laughs> well, that wasn't you? Oh, okay. I thought it was. Oh, amazing. All right. So all, all the guys, you know, everybody knows everybody. So usually when I stop by and I look, I say, hey, wasn't Ethan here tonight? And they'd say, uh, yeah, but he heard you were coming. So he got <laughs> out of here as fast as he could. Not a true story. None, none of that is true. <laughs> For those people listening, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, could you describe your demographics to us? Wow. I cannot believe that you're asking me for my race. Do you know what the times are right now? Oh, are you trying to profile me? I, I am 100%. The other thing is that I, this is normally a long format where we talk half about people and then half about finance. And these are like abridged episodes. But I still ask this question because I want to. If you haven't noticed, I'm trying to talk about me more because I don't want to talk about finance. My father uh, came to this country from Ireland. So you can take that for what it's worth. I sound like a guy. So I think I'm a guy. But uh uh, I don't want to say that because that's going to offend somebody that uh, I'm stereotyping the, the male aspects of it. Age, I'm old enough to know better. I know. I feel like just listening to you, people could pretty much figure out all of those things already without you saying anything. Most of my close friends, when we get together, uh, uh, one, one particular guy used to call me Peter Pan. Most of my friends say, when are you going to grow up? <laughs> Obviously, if you look at my credits, you can tell I've probably been doing this for almost 40 years. But at the same time, I have a six-year-old child, and, and uh, that either makes me uh, young at heart or just plain stupid. <laughs> Age is one of those things I never pay attention to. You're as old as you feel. Yep. And the same thing with, with race and ethnicity, gender. I, I don't want to get into it on this because you can't say anything without somebody saying that you're, you're – uh, uh, somebody profiling you for something and somebody coming back, but we're going through strange time. As I said, I grew up in a bar. It was run by an old world Irishman. When, when, when I was born, my dad was 50. He came from a whole different era. 
And the bar was like, it was a very large bar in downtown Scranton. It had 70 stool circular bar. There was entertainment every night of the week, big stage in the center. My first real design job as a, as a young boy in the eighth grade was doing the lighting for the stage in my father's bar, which had everything from country and Western music to rock and roll music to strippers. I mean, you name it, it was a stage in a bar. I grew up with people that, that came in and out of that bar named Lefty and Whitey and Cooney. And it was like being on the set for Guys and Dolls. And, and consequently, my upbringing was very much broad. It was a very broad background where I experienced a lot of different people and a lot of different races at a time in the 60s where certain races were not treated equally. But at the same time, in my father's bar, it didn't matter. And my daughter and I talk about this a lot because of what's going on right now. My daughter's 22, very much into the movements and to politics, like every good actress should be. Uh, she just graduated from Syracuse with her BFA, which is what a great time to go out in the world of theater, right? <laughs> but it, it concerns me what's going on because although I saw so much of it growing up, it wasn't a part of my life, if that makes any sense. Yeah. The same thing with... Yeah. Uh, uh, with people who work. I mean, I have a strong appreciation for any job that anybody does. I mean, my mother was a nurse. My father ran a bar. I had an aunt who was a waitress, a career waitress. I grew up when there were elevator operators. There were, there were people who had a career as shoe shine boys or shoe shine shops. That's how they made their living. They were happy to have a job that they could take home an honest day's paycheck to take care of their family. And unfortunately, those days are long gone. You know, when you say an elevator operator, that was a job, really? To do what? Not everybody can be a nuclear physicist, but most people want to have inherently some sort of sense that they're contributing to society and they're actually doing something worthwhile, that they're earning an income and supporting themselves. And it's strange because that kind of doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And, and you see it all around New York. There's no middle class anymore in New York. It's either yeah. the very poor or the very wealthy. And, and for what we do in, in the entertainment industry, th there is no words to describe what's happened. You know, I consider myself very lucky, but yeah. um, I, I also work uh, with, with a lot of younger people. And I don't know what people coming out of college right now are going to do. Right. I get a lot of resumes and I interview a lot of designers for the interest of coming to, to LDG. I don't know where people are going to get work because there isn't any work. It's just a bad time. And I don't see it ending soon. And when it does end, it's going to be not a happy ending, unfortunately. All right. Well, I'm glad I asked you that question. <laughs> actually, actually, that was that was fantastic. I really like that. Um, okay. So a couple questions for us just to learn your creative personality, even though I feel like we already know it a little bit. But... What is a live event that you like to experience? The very first show I ever saw on Broadway was Pippin. It was in 1972. Once I saw that and the work of Bob Fosse and Jules Fisher, uh, I said, uh, this is it. This is what I want to do. Plus, a very close friend of mine was the business. It was the son of the business agent of the uh, local Yahtzee in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. There are a lot of tour shows coming in and out. And to make extra money, my friend would bring in a lot of us to unload trucks and that sort of thing. I would do that. I would see like rock and roll concerts and stuff where as I you know, got more and more offers, I would run a follow spot or something like that. 
around that same time that I saw Pippin and being a, a musician, I always wanted to work on the concerts. I, I saw a Billy Joel and then a Elton John concert because I was a piano player. And I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And a, an Elton John show was a spectacular event. I don't know if you saw the revival of Pippin when it was on Broadway a couple of years ago, but the original left such an impression on me. As often as possible, the theater is what the answer to your question. Uh, any event or any sort of artistic thing is to go and see the theater. Before I had three children, I would go to the theater every week, sometimes twice a week. People used to joke with me when I was on the road with Wide World of Sports or Monday Night Football. I'd hit a town. The first thing I'd do is look in the paper to see what was playing in that town. And on my night off, I would go see a show. If there was no professional show, I'd go see a university show. If there's no university, I'd go see a high school show. That whole live experience of the theater, even though I came into it late in my life, late being in my late teenage years, has always been very meaningful to me. And, and really, that's what it's all about. Amazing. What is a piece of art that you like? If you ask 10 people their opinion of a work of art, you're going to get 11 different opinions. <laughs> There's an artist you might not have heard of named Evand Earl. Evand is E-Y-V-I-N-D, E-A-R-L-E. -E. He only died a few years ago. He was in his 90s. But he was a 20th century illustrator. I owned, I bought four works of his, not cheap. And the first one I bought was probably 30 years ago. I saw the work in a gallery and I said, oh my God, this looks like Walt Disney. Then when I, I looked at it more, he happened to be a background illustrator for Disney throughout the 50s. He created the look of Sleeping Beauty. Pick any eight or nine, 10 movies of Disney's in the 50s and 60s. He was the background mad artist. And as you know, it wasn't computer generated. They created the backgrounds. They painted them. They drew them. So I bought this Evan Durrell piece that must have cost me I don't know, eight or nine thousand dollars 30 years ago and then bought one after another after another. And I, I ended up buying four of them ultimately. And, and he's, he's a particular favorite. Another is Norman Rockwell. I bought a Norman Rockwell once when I was doing a special at the Norman Rockwell Museum up in uh, Massachusetts. Old artists, Caravaggio always been a favorite, and Vermeer, for obvious reasons, the, the, the way they work with light. And I was kind of a realistic guy. You know, if I, if I had to pick a fault of mine, I'd have to say that I, I at times get too rigid. You know, and the realistic artwork of a Vermeer or a Caravaggio is something that always, uh, later on in my design uh, uh, development, J.M. Turner, uh, the Impressionist, became. Uh, as I think of this, though, in 1965, my mother took me to the New York World's Fair in Flushing Meadow Park on the bus from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I was, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, however old I was. We waited in the longest line on earth to go through the Vatican exhibit. And at the Vatican exhibit was uh, the Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta, Mary holding the body of Christ. It was a Renaissance carving of Michelangelo. It didn't really mean much to me at the time because I was so young. And we waited in a god-awful long line, and they put you on a treadmill. You weren't even allowed to walk. The treadmill took you by it. And people went, ooh, ah, and all this nonsense. Because there's nuts in the world, some nut actually attacked the statue with a hammer and broke a piece of it when it was on, on the tour. The only reason I tell you this, uh, I've been to Rome several times for, for different special events. Uh, every transition of every pope for the last 20 years, I've been in Rome to cover the transition. 
two years ago, I went and I was uh, asked to light an interview with David Muir and Pope Francis before Pope Francis made his uh, tour of the United States. It was a very special experience being in the office of the Pope in the Vatican. And it was just a small, I didn't even have a crew. I had to set up the lights myself and do it all. And it was a special moment, a special job. But the reason I'm telling you all this, while I was there, I had never seen the artworks of the Vatican, which are expensive, as you well know. And every time I'd been there, there's so many crowds and everything, you can never get in, especially when a Pope dies, everybody. And then they shut stuff down because this was kind of a private thing that was going on. There wasn't a lot of people. And I mentioned this to one of the, the people, uh, the Pope's handlers, and he said, we'll take you around and show you the works of art. I was taken into the Basilica and there was the Pieta. I'm actually experiencing right now the same feelings that I experienced seeing that sculpture that I had seen decades earlier. And all of a sudden, the rush of emotion, the artistic sensibility, and the importance of this work of art in the world just flooded all over me while I was in the Basilica. Uh, I guess in answer to your question, I'd have to say, forget all those other artists that I just mentioned. I, I never had quite an experience like that that took me back to my childhood when I didn't know jack about anything, but then decades later, having been through a life upon the wicked stage, it was a very meaningful moment. And I've never been touched by a piece of art until that moment uh, two years ago when I, when I relived the Pieta. It's not only a beautiful work of art, but it, it carries a lot of symbolism. Being raised as a Roman Catholic in a small town in Pennsylvania, that it, it carries a lot of weight. Dennis, I was planning for this to be like an abridged episode. <laughs> that is the most beautiful answer to that question that I've ever gotten. <laughs> I, I didn't really give it much thought until you brought it forward. And, and thank you for asking the question. But by connection, by extension there, how often do we really look at the importance of art in our world, really. We're so immersed in it all the time. We do a show and after it's over, there's a party and everybody says, oh, that was great, that was wonderful. And then it's history. And let's face it, sometimes doing a, a theatrical project is like giving birth. Amazing. Okay, so I know you've been avoiding talking about finance, but I'll ask the one finance question I have here. Are you bad with money or good with money? It's interesting. I've been in and out of a lot of relationship in my life, and I've made a lot of mistakes, mostly with money. I've made a lot of money. I've lost a lot of money. There was one point in my life where I had nothing, nothing at all. I was bankrupt, and, and the IRS was after me, and, and you name it. Not because I'm bad with money. It's because I don't want to be bothered with money. My life right now was better than it's ever been in my entire life. And, and, and that's because of a woman I met 15 years ago, who is now my wife and has been my wife and mother of two of my three children. She has turned me around and allowed me to do what it is I do. I mean, I, I've had relationships with models and actresses and people that didn't even know how to write a check. And I had to handle everything. People used to say how great I was with it. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. So at one point in my life, I just said, oh, screw it. I'm not going to be bothered. I didn't do my taxes for years. And uh, I just ran around doing art. And uh, then I met this woman who, who said, are you an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
she happened to be an accountant also, by the way, ah. with her degree in business. And, <laughs> and uh, she was getting her master's in accounting when I met her. A total different departure for me, but it was much like the Pieta, a revelation in my life. You know, Ethan, I couldn't even tell you what I make. Uh, I, I couldn't even tell you anything about money. For the last decade and a half, she has handled all of that. When she found out that I had fallen so far behind in taxes, she said, this has got to stop. I literally didn't do taxes for about five years. My accountant stopped calling me. The IRS was after me. So she sat me down. We did all our taxes. We took them to the accountant. And he said, marry this woman. <laughs> and uh, uh, I did. You know? so, uh, so when it comes to finances and accounting, she literally handles everything in, in my life. And I am so appreciative for it because that allows me the, the time to run around and have fun doing whatever it is that I do. You know, I'd like to say doing art, but half the time it's not even art, but there is a creativity about it. And if I don't have to think about money, then I don't. Now, all of that being said, I'm the executive vice president in one of the, if not the largest lighting design company in the country, very successful. As you know, as a lighting designer, we're always doing budgets and numbers and crunching and, and production managers don't do anything without me authorizing it. And I go over budget line items like nobody can, <laughs> but I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's when, it, if I'm on the road doing my expenses, people are lucky that I send them a taxi receipt from a year ago. Cause I really hate it. When you, when you hate doing something, you just don't do it. Pre pandemic, we used to have an executive assistant at LDG. That person took care of two executive vice presidents, me and Mark London, who you probably know, who runs our systems division, and Steve Brill, president of the company. Unfortunately, that, that person had to be laid off because of the pandemic. And now I'm like, wait a minute, I have to do my own expenses? Whoa, <laughs> I, I can't do that. That involves keeping receipts and totaling them all up and then saying what something costs. And, and it's funny because production managers will say, you're so good at it. <laughs> When I'm bound and gagged and tied to the chair and they're lighting a fire under my seat, I'm really good at it. <laughs> and as That's I said, amazing. when it comes to my personal life, you know, I, I might run out of cash. I'll go to the bank, take some money out. Then I'll get a phone call from my wife saying, don't take money out without telling me. <laughs> yes, dear. I'm joking about so much of this, but as an artist, you know exactly what I'm saying. Yep. There are many artists that don't even know how to write a check, yeah. let alone pay off their student loan and all the other things that's so important in life. Even now, uh, as the pandemic is, is still roaring on across the country, although not as much in New York, we have daily meetings every morning with the executive staff of LDG to analyze what our next move is and who we can unfurlough and what about this project and is that worth taking on because it's going to involve so much time that doesn't realize any profit, extensive amount of meetings. And when the pandemic started, we were having executive meetings in the morning and at night to talk about what happened today. Now, what do we got to do to be prepared? But it, it's a time where you can't be prepared. You know, we prepare scenarios. Okay, if A happens, we'll do B or C. But if A doesn't happen and, and Y happens, then we'll do X and W. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we spend a lot of time figuring out problems before they happen. Yeah. I'm going to shift to COVID talk now <laughs> because you're sort of getting into it. First of all, like how big is LDG? Um, I know you said 33 designers, but I know you have more, more 
people than that working for you? In February, we had 55 people on staff, full-time staff. Then we probably had people like yourself who worked regularly, about 10. Over and above that, we also have a freelance base of about 150 people. At that time, when the pandemic hit, this was going to be probably the biggest years ever for LDG. We were doing the presidential conventions. We were doing the Olympics in Japan. We were prepping a host of other shows. And our systems and facilities division, which is very strong, has about 20 projects going on around the world. We were gearing up. We have a freelance base of about 100, 150 people. Those people were now being put on hold so we can assign them to all the various places. And then it hit the fan. We had container trucks of gear on their way to Japan for the Olympics. And they had to be brought back and money was lost restocking all of that rental gear. And I don't know if it's because of my age or my sense of being a realist, but when it hit and we were having executive meetings, Steve Brill, the owner and other executives were trying to figure out what they were going to do, you know, next week or next month, or how do we do this? Are we going to have to lay off some people or maybe we can put people on part-time? Uh, we still need to prep the Olympics because nobody knew how bad it was going to go. Really, I said, are you kidding me? There's not going to be an Olympics. There's not going to be a presidential convention. There will not be a summer. Everything is going to shut down. Do you see what's going on in China and in Europe? This country is going to be hit and hit hard. I got the unfortunate reputation of being Debbie Downer when I'm usually pretty optimistic. It, it, it was a, a very difficult time. Fortunately, Steve Brill is, is a very sharp businessman. We have a very strong COO and our finance VP is very strong. We immediately applied for PPP aid and, and got a very strong grant. Actually, it was a loan, but we're hoping it becomes a grant. And because of that, we were able to keep the whole staff on payroll throughout the whole summer. But that doesn't last forever. So come the end of July, we had to furlough people. It's a shame because now uh, I think we're down around 25 people on staff, which is still still good, And we're, but we're all busy. And unfortunately, the PPP loans don't cover all the bills. You can imagine our IT bill is astronomical. We rent an entire floor in a building for our offices. You can imagine what that rent is in Midtown Manhattan. So all of those bills aren't covered by the PPP. So we had to start cutting back and figuring out ways of paying the bills, which meant people doing double shifts, reductions in salaries, that kind of thing. Because all the jobs went away, there was once the PPP loan died, there was no way to pay people. Now, as certain jobs are coming back, for example, we do uh, NBC's football on Monday night or Sunday night. The LD that handles that has just been on furloughed and he's on the road as of this weekend doing football. As I said, I'm, I'm setting up Tamron Hall for the, the season and they want to be in the studio. They're in their second season. Last season, we did the whole year. The lighting designer who sits on that show, I just unfurloughed. And she'll be coming back. And, and as that happens, we're trying to unfurlough our people and, and get them back into the mix. But uh, the prognosis isn't pretty. There's a lot of jobs we do for different clients, studios we do for Yahoo Finance or Huffington Post, NFL, cable. The studios are shut down because the clients we work for can't even get into the buildings where these are studios and office buildings. And we've already had our, our agreements with them canceled. What about the LDs that sit on those shows? It, it's, it's all very bad. Fortunately, our systems and facilities division is very strong. We're still doing studio build outs. And you know how studios are. It takes forever. You know, the Hudson, you've worked at Hudson Yards. That was three years in the making. Right. 
I'm doing two major studios for CBS that are in process. They're not going to be, I mean, the ground isn't even broken for one of them. So it'll be two years before that comes to fruition. But there are a couple of studios right now that are happening for clients. And what we've been doing, instead of hiring freelance electricians like we would normally do, we're unfurloughing our staffers and we're bringing them in as crew so that we can at least pay them and keep people working. It's not the best solution, but it helps. We like to be as loyal as we can to our employees. All those furloughed people, we're paying their benefits and their insurance and everything else while they're out. Amazing. It's just difficult. If you don't have the work and you don't have the money, what do you do? We like to look at LDG as a family, and, and this is our family, and however we can, we try and support it. You know, people say to me, why, why do you work at LDG? You could probably make so much more money as a freelancer. Well, yeah, I could, but it's part of our family. This is my 23rd year in the company. I've invested a lot, even though I don't own the company, but it's part of a family. You know how it is when your family's in trouble or there's a, an uncle who's sick, you help out. You do whatever it is you can. And I think that's very important to not only maintain the sensibility, the human side of a business, but also for yourself. I mean, I couldn't look myself in the mirror in the morning if I didn't know that I, I tried as much as possible to do the right thing. You know, one of the most difficult things that I probably ever did in my life is, is make phone calls to a dozen designers to tell them they were being furloughed. It's very difficult. And even how those decisions get made, it's very difficult to, to go through all of that. Uh, it's not a good time for anybody, frankly. But. but well, but honestly, what you describe is actually not. I mean, it's bad. Everything's bad. You know, 150 freelancers not working, and then 25 of your staff getting laid off or furloughed. Yeah, that's bad. It's really bad. And the remaining 25 taking pay cuts and working extra. That's all very bad. But it's not as bad as it could be. Like you guys are still functioning. Look at Broadway. And I'll be honest, a lot of people, especially clients I work for, they say, it's amazing. You guys, you don't miss a beat. It's like nothing happened with you. Let's face it. We do shows and we're successful. And even yourself as a freelance designer in the world, it's important for you to instill a level of confidence in the people that you work with and for. If you don't, it's like screwing up. You're not going to get called back. People hire you because they know that you're confident in what you do and they can be confident in you. If people we work for aren't confident that LDG is a survival company, they'll start to think we can't survive for them. It ends up being uh, a dog-eat-dog situation. And, and, and unfortunately, going back to your question about good with money, I mean, money's the wrong way of saying it. Good with business is, is the important issue. You know, even when, I, when I'm hiring young designers out of school and, I, and I'm interviewing them, being a talented designer is one thing, but being a grown-up for lack of a better word, is far more important because if I'm putting people into a situation where they have to interact with clients, you know what the political ramifications are if you say something wrong to a client, especially somebody that's got an ax to grind to begin with. And they say, hey, look at this young kid out of school. I'll eat him for breakfast. And, and it seems like uh, some people just get some sort of perverse enjoyment out of that. And it's very important for me to make sure that we send nobody into battle uh, without the proper armor and to make sure that they know how to defend themselves. It's a bizarre analogy, but <laughs> it's business. Yeah. Um, okay. I know you're, you're super busy. Do you know anything about the Restart Act or the Save Our Stages Act? I do now. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't have time to breathe. When you uh, asked me to be part of this podcast as part of the Restart Act, I said, what the hell is that? 
I happened to be on a job site, mentioned to one of the uh, electricians. I said, you know what the reason? Oh, that's that thing where they're going to light all the buildings around in the country. And I I said, oh, okay, you know. Well, because I know you guys don't control any buildings, but you are a lighting design group. And so I thought maybe you guys were lighting up something. I have some red gel. (laughs) I have some red gel in my garage. I'm going to put it on my porch lights. But that's why I'm doing this series of episodes is just, you know, mentioning it a little bit. I think it's great. I really do. And and any awareness that can be raised is, is certainly you are to be applauded, uh, especially when you're going out of your way for something that will benefit the the greater good of the community, not necessarily you personally. And during these times, that's what people need to do. I'd like to say it was my idea, but Ellen from Live Design asked me to do a special one. And so I said, okay, I'll do. And then I'm doing five of them. (laughs) But the Restart Act, like you said, you used PPP. I think the Restart Act, I think it's going to help businesses more than people, but also it will help people. You know, we're trying to raise awareness for the live event workers. But if this thing gets passed, it's going to help the greater good, like everybody in the country, you know, restaurant workers and everybody else. If the businesses can't continue, then who's going to hire the workers? Exactly. And you guys can sort of shrink and expand a little bit at LDG, but like a theater that owns property, I mean, if they can't pay their bills, that prime real estate is going to get bought up immediately and we're not going to have that venue. So I think the businesses absolutely need help. Uh, Even at LDG, our growth, in the last decade has been phenomenal. When you grow, you also have to expand your support. You know, we used to have a very small office, then we got a bigger office. Now we have a gargantuan office. It requires feeding. If you uh, own a DeLorean or a Ferrari, that particular car requires expensive maintenance. Yeah. Lighting Design Group is kind of the Ferrari of the industry. Keeping it going is expensive to maintain. And right now, we're doing everything in our power, the core group of people and and the executive body, to uh, keep that Ferrari humming because we want to stay in the race. And and ultimately, that will lead to us being able to get back where we were. When is that going to happen? It's going to be a while. But uh, we're going to stay in the race regardless. And whatever it's going to take to do, we're going to do. I love it. Um, Okay, final two questions. Do you have any advice or encouragement to live event? workers and artists right now, or maybe to your furloughed employees? Anything encouraging to say? You know, no. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm such an optimist. And and it's very difficult, Ethan. I want to be realistic with people. And and I have furloughed designers and people that work with us that are are asking, when? When will it happen? When can we? I don't know. You know, the best advice you can give is the advice that you always hear that old cliche, prepare for the worst and be happy when you get the best. Back in March, we were told to hunker down and stay healthy. At this point, do the same thing. What I advise people to do is to grow and to do things and learn things that weren't necessarily in your wheelhouse. Because when this comes back, you're going to need to have a broader base of skill sets because people are going to start saying, okay, I got a job open and there's six people. Which one of those six people am I going to hire? Personality, perseverance, dedication, the way somebody carries themselves goes a long way. But if one person has five skill sets and the others don't, guess who's going to get hired? And this business has changed drastically. You know, it used to be a, a lighting designer only needed to know 
design, artistic sensibility, if you will. Now there's so many things to, we don't even hang lights anymore. We hang computers. It's a very different world. You know, one of the nice things about Lighting Design Group, especially on big shows I do, half the time, I don't know how these shows even happen. I'm surrounded with a very strong support group of programmers and, and gaffers who, once I design something, will either say to me, you're out of your head, or we can make this happen. That's one of the great things about Lighting Design Group. We are a group of people who support each other, not only in getting a production up, but during these difficult times. Yeah. I will say, so I've freelanced for you for eight to nine years. The LDG designers and electricians and gaffers, everybody, are such hardworking people. The amount of hours people are putting in, the amount of effort. There's nobody at LDG that's not a hard worker. You guys have like the A team of people. <laughs> Thank you very much. We, we like to think that. It's interesting. When I was at ABC yesterday, the vice president of the news division stopped me in the hall and said, do you happen to know who the lighting designer was who did Ford McHenry last night on the RNC? I said, of course I do. I said, why are you asking? He said, because everybody's talking about how great it looked and, and how wonderful it was. And I said, well, who do you think did it? And he said, well, I would have thought you, but you're here. I said, well, Lighting Design Group did it. We're handling all of those things. It's other senior designers within the company and Steve Brill and Danny Kelly, who are, are talented people. Uh, I'm sure you've worked with Dan. He's probably the best designer in the whole company, bar none. The, the crazy thing is they didn't go down until last Thursday. The RNC had no idea what they were going to do. And those guys made it happen over the weekend with a very large lighting company behind them and all of that. But, but it's interesting that the, the vice president of ABC News and people are talking about it. It's, it's one of the things that LDG tries to maintain the most, its reputation. Uh, it's no different than what I said earlier, though. When you get the job, don't screw up. You won't get called back. It's, it's the most basic thing. Yeah. And, and I will say Dan Kelly is the best designer in the company, except for Dennis Size. Oh, come on. Come on. Wait until Neil or all, some of the other designers see me and they're going to say, well, let's hope they don't listen to this. <laughs> a, a Jesuit teacher who was a friend of mine also, Father Quinn was his name, was English. He said, they used to call people doctor. He said, doctor size. After four years, you have become a master in the Jesuit art of bullshitting. <laughs> it's nice of you to say that. But uh, I, I think uh, I'm probably a better bullshitter than Dan. <laughs> I, I will That's always so admire Dan's artistic abilities. Amazing. Okay, Dennis, uh, last question. Where can people find out more about you and or LDG? Uh, you know, call me. <laughs> Email me. <laughs> Lighting Design Group's website is uh, uh, www.ldg.com. All right, Dennis, that's all I have. Thank you so much for making the time and sitting down with us. You're welcome. See you soon. Hopefully we'll have a job for you. That was our interview with Dennis Size. My takeaway was do a good job and don't mess up and you'll be rehired time and time again. This Tuesday, September 1st, post and reshare photos of red lit buildings with the hashtags RedAlertRestart, WeMakeEvents, ExtendPUA, and save our stages. Additionally, contact your legislators to let them know that the Restart Act is necessary. And one last personal favor to me, please subscribe to Artistic Finance on your podcast app and leave a rating and review. 
And if you're feeling extra helpful, visit artisticfinance.com and become a patron or purchase some swag. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steinle. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.